inviting me. It is a really a, a pleasure and an honor to, to be here in Oxford and to have the opportunity uh, to present some of the partial results and conclusions of uh, uh, my ongoing project. Uh, so, um, as uh, just mentioned, I'm the principal investigator of this uh, project, Sustainable Ocean, and the focus of the project is really regime interaction in ocean governance. And uh, of course, um, Okay, <laughs> I'm not doing it by myself, uh, but uh, I will, uh, in order to uh, uh, explain as well a bit the framework in which I'm conducting this research, I would like just very briefly to introduce you uh, the project. Should I? Yes, sorry, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> if you want to use Oh, this. yeah, sure, yeah, I don't mind. Okay. <laughs> to introduce you the project, so you have the framework of uh, the current research and the main research question that we are tackling within the project. And then uh, I will define the terms of the discussion, so what are the conceptions of ocean governance regime and regime interaction that we are using within our project in order to uh, uh, analyze and use regime interaction within ocean governance. And then I will focus on one case study uh, because I always think it's easier to understand how uh, this phenomenon work by focusing on actual activities. And I took the one of investment protection of uh, offshore energy project because, well, as it was just said, it's one of the topics that I've been working on in the last years. And it's also a very good case studies for regime interaction because you have many different instruments really coming from different areas of the law which need to be jointly applied in the regulation of the projects. And then I will try to uh, give you some concluding remarks uh, before the Q&A. Okay, so first of all, the Sustainable Ocean uh, Project. So the background, uh, um, at the, the, the background of this project is that we have a multiplication of activities at sea. And that alongside very classic activities, such as offshore oil and gas exploitation and fisheries, which have been ongoing already uh, for uh, at least 60 years for the oil and gas and centuries for the fishing, we have new activities that are performed at sea. Uh, one is for sure the um, expansion of renewable <coughs> energy technologies such as wind parks, but not only ocean thermal conversion is one, uh, tidal barriers, uh, uh, waved barriers and so on. And of course deep seabed mining, even though it is considered a classic activity because we have it in the law of the sea convention, the exploitation phase is about to start. So it is in a way a new activity because we, will, we are faced now with the challenges that this uh, exploitation uh, will pose. So the basic idea of the project is, well, we have all those activities which are performed simultaneously at sea. All those activities are actually uh, regulated by a plethora of instruments which have been elaborated by very different actors. And they have to be applied sometimes overlapping uh, uh, in different maritime zones. And the regulator, but also the economic stakeholder, when they take a decision, when they have to shape, uh, uh, maybe when they have to take a, uh, to grant a concession, or when they have to elaborate a new uh, piece of legislation, well, they have to take into consideration a series of interests, a series of goals, which are actually protected by those different instruments. And this includes, of course, the continuity of the relevant economic activities, 
but also the protection of the marine environment and the conservation of the biodiversity, climate change <coughs> effects, uh, guaranteeing energy efficiency and security, and as well the protection of the rights of local communities and populations. So the different legal regimes which protect these different uh, interests have to interact. And the project wants to analyze how they do it. And if those interactions cause problems, how can we solve those problems? That's the basic idea of the project. Uh, the project focuses on the interaction of three main fields of international law. The law of the sea, environmental and climate change law, and energy law. And the, uh, the proposition is that a balance of the three fields of law will hopefully guarantee a sustainable use of uh, the oceans. So the main research question is a legal one and not a political one. It's how does the law uh, strike a balance between competing interests at sea and contribute to the sustainable use of the oceans? So what are the legal tools which will allow us to apply simultaneously the different types of field instruments and that will help us to strike a balance eventually if we need to balance the different interests. Uh, putting aside for a moment, of course, the policy considerations that are within, of course, the regimes as well. As I said, I'm not doing that by myself. Uh, the project is divided in three uh, work packages. I'm in charge of the first work package as a principal investigator, so I'm, I will have to come up <laughs> with a theory that will explain that all uh, by, the, by 2020, and I'm trying, <laughs> I'm really trying. Uh, and I'm basing uh, my uh, work on uh, the work of uh, two PhD students uh, who are writing one on uh, actually the Law of the Sea Convention, on how flexible the Law of the Sea Convention is in accommodating new interests. So Rosemarine is focusing actually on the mechanisms for change, which are within the Law of the Sea Convention, and then she's focusing on geoengineering and deep sea bed mining as case studies. And uh, Nikolaus is uh, focusing on offshore energy uh, production. And then we have Vivian helping us as a junior researcher. This is the background of the research. And so the type of theoretical framework that I want to design or that I'm trying to build is, of course, aimed at answering the overall research question. So in order to define, or in order to answer the research question, uh, we found ourselves with a few questions, <laughs> sub-questions to address first, which were, well, which are the terms of the discussion? Uh, so we are talking about regime interaction, we are talking about ocean governance, but which are our understandings of those concepts? So in particular, ocean governance is a bit of a, a, a question mark. Uh, um, we, ocean governance is, is a, a, um, yeah, a concept, uh, a, a wording which is very fashionable in the last 10 years, I would say, 15 maybe. Uh, before that we would talk more of ocean affairs or ocean law and policy, now we are back to ocean governance and no one, well, 
everybody has a bit of a different conception of what offshore governance is, and I always like to remember this uh, statement of uh, uh, Finkenstein who says, well, we use governance when we don't really know what to call what is going on. Huh? So it's to encompass everything which is going on and that we don't know exactly uh, how it is kind of working. Um, the Lawlessy scholars have approached the issue of governance uh, in different ways, and here I would like just to mention two main approaches. One is the one of uh, uh, Rothwell and Stevens, uh, which uh, they both focus on actually the concept of ocean management. So for them, ocean governance is almost a synonym of ocean management, so it includes all the tools regulatory tools and institutional <coughs> tools which participate in ocean management. I personally share more the uh, approach of Tanaka in his, in his uh, seminal work of 2008, where he also includes the concept of management, in particular within the zonal approach of the law of the sea, saying, well, the zonal approach with the different regimes of the different maritime zones gives the tools, the regulatory tools for the management of the oceans, but this is not enough to actually um, cover all ocean governance. We also have a series of cross-sectoral, cross-cutting issues, which are part of this idea of integrated ocean management. So the fact that the different uh, sectors, economic sectors, the different activities need also to be analyzed together and that we need to go beyond this uh, very tight sectoral approach to the oceans and this very uh, uh, tight as well st uh, strict uh, zonal approach. So in the, in the project, we are closer to the uh, conception of Tanaka and we are really trying to look are those integrated issues, the cross-sectoral and uh, cross-zonal uh, issues that are within the concept of, international, of integrated ocean uh, management. This is for, gov uh, for uh, ocean governance, but then what is a regime? Uh, what is our conception of regime within ocean governance? Here again, this is a concept as governance, which is not originally a legal one that we uh, imported uh, from international relations and uh, political sciences. And still, as a lawyer, with as lawyers that like I, <laughs> me as a lawyer, I still have difficulties sometimes uh, uh, to to be uh, completely uh, self-confident in using uh, those words. So. Um, Regimes uh, can be defined in different ways. We have a very narrow approach, which was the one of the International Law Commission in the uh, 2003 fragmentation report, which said that actually, the, um, which focuses on the rules. Uh, so the regime uh, is composed of the rules, uh, so the substantive obligations, of course, but as well the procedural rules which participate uh, in the uh, application of a specific uh, treaty. I personally uh, uh, find myself more comfortable with wider uh, concepts of uh, uh, regime. Uh, so, uh, oh, sorry. water all over the place, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
No, it's more for the computer than for anything else. I don't want to. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is it your no, no, no. <laughs> it's, uh, yes, it's ocean governance. It's <laughs> so Sorry. Don't worry. You're fine? Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Some water. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's fine. Thank you, Irene. So, <coughs> oh, hopefully, no damage to the equipment. <coughs> okay, I'll move everything from this table before. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> so, uh, yes, regime. Um, so, as I said, I find myself more comfortable with uh, white. Uh, looser conception of regime, which include as well the institutional dimension of it. So not only the rule, but as well the actual uh, organization, institution, treaty body, and so on, which participate in the lawmaking and in the law implementation uh, of the specific uh, uh, treaty. I find myself more comfortable with it because I think that it gives a more comprehensive uh, picture of what a regime is, because by looking as well at the institutional framework, we are able to uh, include in the analysis all the relevant actors, so the treaty bodies, but as well the actors which interact with the treaty bodies, so eventually stakeholders. Um, we also can include a wider variety of normative production, so not only the uh, product of the conference of the parties, but eventually as well the, uh, all the instrument declarations, recommendations of any of the stakeholder participating in uh, the specific uh, regime. And we include as well uh, a broader uh, variety of decision-making processes, because of course we look at more stakeholders and at the production of ma very many different um, instruments. How do the regimes interact? Uh, the regimes can interact in three main ways. The interaction can be conflicting. Yeah? So you have a direct clash between the two regimes. They can be synergetic in the sense that they actually support each other. So they actually help each other in, their, in being effective. Or they can be neutral. So the two instruments apply to the same situation, but they actually do not impact each other directly or even indirectly. The way in which the interaction happens is uh, influenced by four main factors. First of all is the time, the period the, in which the instrument was uh, concluded, because of course each instrument is the product of the uh, legal context of that time and of the legal mentality and sensitivity of that period. So the Law of the Sea Convention is the product of the 70s. Huh? And it has in it some elements that if we would negotiate the Law of the Sea Convention today, we would not have. Huh? So we have a different type of sensitivity, we have a different legal mentality, and we have a different legal context. And that, of course, can create uh, conflicts sometimes, so can create tension between the instruments. The different institutional structures, some uh, you are well aware, in particular in the field of uh, environment, 
some treaties have very strong treaty bodies. We cannot, we, uh, they can also adopt uh, uh, binding instruments. Some other treaties have very loose institutional frameworks, um, which can only adopt recommendations uh, for the uh, contracting parties. And then the lack of uh, parallel membership, which has been studied quite extensively by many <coughs> scholars. And then, of course, the divergent interests or goals of the different instruments. The interaction can happen in three, uh, uh, can have three main dimensions. There can be an interaction of goal. Uh, so the goals are different and they might either conflict or be synergetic or be neutral in, its, in their application between institution, the overlap, overlapping mandate of treaty bodies, and the interaction between legal norms, which is the classic treaty conflict. How do I apply all that to a concrete case? Huh? So this is just to map a bit the different categories that we are using and the subcategories. Now let's try to apply it to a concrete case and see what are the results of this interaction in practice. So, as you might have noticed, I like to visualize <laughs> uh, my reasoning. Here we go. Uh, so, in the field of uh, uh, investment uh, in the um, uh, the protection of investment in the offshore energy sector. Again, three main uh, fields of international law are relevant. The law of the sea, of course, because it gives us the general uh, jurisdictional framework, but also some core environmental obligations. Then environmental law and climate change, where, again, we have a series of instruments which set standards and obligations in the specific sector. And then, of course, international economic law, where we actually have the protection of the investor. And the main issue in this sector is the balance between, on the one hand, the protection of the investor, and on the other hand, the protection of the marine environment, which is, of course, which falls, of course, between where, within the law of the sea and environmental law. So, how does the regime interaction huh, in this uh, context impact? the investment protection. We can also turn the question on the other side, how does investment protection impact the, prote the protection of the marine environment? But uh, in this case, I decided to uh, take uh, as a standpoint, if you want, the protection of the investor and see how the integration of the interests and of the obligations from the other regimes impact the content of the uh, investment protection. So, first of all, the legal framework. Now, let's stay on the uh, quite uh, general uh, side of it. So, the, the, the legal framework, UNCLOS, that's the starting point. UNCLOS, as I said, set the jurisdictional framework, but also set, uh, is the starting point of a sophisticated system of marine environmental protection. Sophisticated, why? Because it also is the legal basis for the development of subsequent instruments, which will complement then the Law of the Sea <coughs> Convention. But 
even within the law of the sea convention we still have as i mentioned earlier some core obligations which directly apply to the production of offshore energy so of course the general obligation to protect the marine environment under article 192 which is not an empty obligation as we thought for a long time but which includes a, a clear obligation of due diligence for the states in the way in which they perform their economic activities uh, within their uh, maritime zones but even beyond their maritime zones and then article 206 uh, which is the basis for the obligation of environmental impact assessment and from there uh, the law of the sea convention has also specific obligations for uh, seabed activities article 208 in particular the regulatory framework, of course, does not stop with the Law of the Sea Convention, otherwise I wouldn't be here, <laughs> uh, and we would not have interaction. Uh, so, as I said, we have the Law of the Sea Convention, but then the, uh, the legal framework kind of gets more complicated, and we have different uh, pieces of the puzzles that we need to put together. Um, so, at the global level, uh, we have the relevant instruments which have been developed uh, in the context of the Law of the Sea Convention for the uh, reduction, prevention and control of pollution, and one of them is MARPOL. We do not have a, a global instrument on uh, seabed activities, uh, on pollution deriving from seabed activities. We don't have it. Um, but we have, so MARPOL, some of the uh, provisions of MARPOL are also applicable to the production of offshore energy, Convention on Biodiversity, ESPO Convention on uh, Environmental Impact Assessment, the Ramsar Convention on Wetlands, which protects as well some coastal areas and that needs to be taken into consideration by the state when it grants concessions of the wetlands. Uh, the World Heritage Convention, which also uh, protects some sites at sea, some natural sites, and then the Energy Charter Treaty, which is actually the only multilateral investment treaty which has a specific focus <coughs> on the protection uh, of investment in the energy sector and which apply, applies as well at sea. To that, we have to add the regulatory framework at the regional level. So we have a series of uh, specialized instruments, such as the Barcelona Offshore Protocol to the Barcelona Convention for the Protection and Preservation of the Mediterranean. We have the Kuwait Offshore uh, Protocol. We have the OSPAR Convention, some specific uh, um, provisions of the OSPAR Convention, some specific provisions of the Helsinki Convention, and then, of course, EU law. EU law for our context, well, more or less, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this area of the world, um, in which, uh, of course, we have the three dimensions. Uh, EU law uh, regulates the environmental side of, uh, of it, the uh, cl uh, climate change uh, law of the sea side of it, with certain limitations and the investment part of it, because now the EU, since a few years, has as well exclusive competence in the field of investment. And at the regional uh, level, we have as well, on the other side of the Atlantic, for instance, NAFTA, which is a regional agreement as well for the protection of investment. And all those treaties 
have also specific types of institutions yeah, that complete, of course, the regime. To that, sh we should not forget the bilateral level, which is fundamental in the protection of investment, because actually investment protection is based on BITs, on bilateral investment treaties. Um, to that, sometimes in certain areas, in particular in disputed areas, you might have, or in, a trans, uh, in areas in which you have a transboundary uh, resource, you might have joint development agreements. So an agreement concluded uh, with the neighboring state for the <coughs> joint exploitation of a specific resource or of a specific area. And here you can understand how you don't necessarily have a correspondence between the parties to the joint development agreement and the bilateral investment treaty because the investor, um, let's, uh, let's see, might be for state A investing in state B, but the neighbor of state B is state C. Uh, so you have to kind of apply together the BIT between A and B and the joint development agreement between C and B. How do we do it? <laughs> and that's uh, the approach that we uh, uh, would like to suggest and that, as I said as well, I think in the abstract is a work in progress um, as it is uh, uh, the kind of, uh, yeah, uh, preliminary conclusions uh, that uh, we are uh, drawing from actually the first workshop that we had in April. So my suggestion uh, and I'm open to criticism on that. <laughs> My suggestion is that in order to handle the interaction between uh, those different regimes, we need to go a bit beyond the distinction lawmaking, law application, which is one of the starting points as well of the work of uh, uh, Anna Peters, for those of you who are familiar with her article of uh, 2017 on fragmentation, where she focuses a lot on like those two moments of uh, the legal process. And what I suggest is that we need to focus on the type of obligation, on the type of interaction. So it's by identifying the type of interaction that then we are able to uh, choose the tool that will help us to deal with the interaction. And I categorize the interactions in uh, three uh, categories here that you see here. One is the interactive form. So is the interaction between instruments that we already have sometimes. So we, uh, in uh, the uh, text of the treaty, we have compatibility clauses. We have rules of reference, which is a, a classic uh, technique of the law of the sea but which we don't have in all instruments, huh? but more or less a compatibility clause is there in most of uh, most treaties. Um, and then of course, the relevant instrument for dealing with uh, this interactive form uh, are uh, the derives from the law of treaties, law of lawmaking and doctrine of sources, depending what you think about the uh, way in which law of this, of, uh, in which international law comes into being. The second type of interaction is the actual interaction between the obligations. Uh, so it's the interactive substance. We go to the substantive interaction. It's not the formal interaction of instrument, but it's the substantive interaction of obligations. And there, uh, in order to 
balance uh, uh, or to, to, to simultaneously apply those obligations, we have a series of balance, balancing legal principles uh, that have been developed uh, by the case law, but that we find as well already within some of the obligations, so reference to reasonableness, proportionality, and deference. But as well, we have balancing legal obligations. So substantive obligations, which forces us to uh, actually a balancing exercise. Um, one is the due regard principle in the law of the sea. Another one is the obligation to cooperate. So the fact that you need in the way in which you manage a specific activity, take into consideration as well the interest of a third state, for instance. So that's a balancing exercise as well. And the precautionary principle can also be uh, framed as a balancing uh, obligation because it forces the decision maker to actually decide which interests should prevail, whether the continuation of the economic activity or the preservation of the environment. Of course, in the case of the precautionary principle, the scale is a bit tilted uh, because the precautionary principle tells us that the, the, the scale should tilt towards the protection of the marine environment. But it forces the regulator to do this balancing exercise. Uh, so to put as well uh, com uh, competing interests together in uh, deciding uh, over a specific activity. And then we have the interactive process which is the relationship between institutions. So the different uh, treaty bodies, international organizations, but as well administrations, which participate in the regulatory framework of a specific activity. And here we see quite uh, uh, different approaches out there. Uh, many treaty bodies have concluded a memorandum of understandings to kind of have an institutionalized cooperation, a structural cooperation, um, we have as well uh, had the creation of task forces uh, and as well joint procedure of uh, compliance mechanisms. But of course, those are still quite uh, isolated cases. Huh? So it's not a generalized practice. Um, the legal tools, we find them in the law of international institutions, but we find them as well in some more theoretical approaches and that depends of course on the legal sensitivity of uh, uh, the commentator and of the regulator which has global administrative or law or international public authority. We also have procedural obligations which help us to handle the interaction between the institutions. So for instance the environmental impact assessment obligation will oblige the regulator to also take into consideration the interest of the different institutions. Yeah. Um, due diligence can also be framed within environmental law as a, um, a procedural obligation to a certain extent because it forces, again, the regulator, the institution to take into consideration the interest of the other. So this is the three uh, category approach that uh, uh, I suggest to handle the different types of interaction. At the moment, uh, we have we are applying it. Well, I have applied it only 
to the offshore energy sector. Um, but hopefully, uh, this can be a, a useful length uh, of analysis as well for other uh, sectors of activity. And so, and of course, uh, the three kind of are not isolated again uh, in the sense that. Uh, the way in which the interaction between the institution will happen might impact then the drafting techniques of the subsequent instruments and might also impact the way in which the interpretation of the substantive obligation is done. So it's not that there is the, the three categories are uh, isolated. So to conclude, Yes, <laughs> not too long. Um, so we still have a lot of pending questions, uh, and um, so we, we still have quite a, a, a bit to, to work on. Uh, so one is how, of course, um, the uh, one thing is the um, the different goals, uh, so the different policy goals, the different interests which are protected by the different regimes. But how do you then? handle the competing challenges. And what I mean is, uh, a concrete example is, for instance, uh, the uh, depletion of a resource, uh, of a natural resource, so uh, the degradation of biodiversity and energy security. Uh, those are two challenges. How, what type of balance does international law strike? Uh, so the challenges sometimes do not correspond uh, to the uh, direct policy goals of a, re of a regime, and so there might be some uh, ambiguity there. And then the different principles that I uh, and uh, rules that I suggest in my uh, diagram um, are there to also allow a pluralistic accommodation of uh, the interest, but maybe we <laughs> should have a hierarchy sometimes. So with the precautionary principle, we have a hierarchy in a way because the the uh, the main goal is the protection of the environment. But with the other one, reasonableness, proportionality, and so on, due regard, there is no hierarchy of goals, and so they might not actually um, uh, well, they might not end up in giving a, a practical solution to the interaction. So it's like when there is a need of hierarchy, how do we handle that? And from a legal perspective, this is very difficult because usually it's the policy priority which will then tilt the scale. But how do you um, justify it from a legal perspective? And that's still an, a pending question. Um, but we have some optimistic conclusions <laughs> uh, for now. Uh, so one is that uh, I think that after uh, a lot of concern about fragmentation and as well regime interaction, um, more and more regime interaction is not seen as a problem per se, uh, uh, but more as actually uh, the description of the status quo. That's what is happening. Regimes have to interact because uh, we have so many instruments and we have so many activities and issues that trigger the different legal regimes and that's how international law developed and so that's it. And the regime interaction per se is not a threat to the implementation of the obligations and to the coherence eventually of a treaty system, but it can 
as well be a way uh, to actually uh, have a more coherent legal order uh, if coherency is the objective. Um, and uh, so the identity, in our view, the, uh, the uh, categorization of the interaction, so to identify the type of interaction that we are looking at is key in order to identify the applicable legal tools and techniques so that we can properly handle the interaction and hopefully find a practical solution to it. So, oh, that's it for me. Thank you very much, and I'm looking forward to your comments and questions.